morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's first episode uh, for Eco Access Clinic Network's uh, research podcast. Today, also our very first episode, dipping into precision medicine a bit, and we have our very first special guest, Dr. Laurie Cavallari. How are you today? Morning. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? No, doing good myself. Doing good myself. Um, and today we're also joined by our very special co-host, Ashka. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Danny? <laughs> yeah, doing pretty good. Um, and so for today, dipping into a little bit of precision medicine, I guess the first topic to talk about is, you know, what is precision medicine all about? And uh, yeah, Dr. Cavalier, she just gives us a little insight, maybe like a brief little dive for our, our viewers who may not know uh, much about precision medicine to begin with. And uh, yeah, and in detail, a little bit of what, what you do here at UF. Sure. So it's we recognize that there is variability in, among patients on how they respond to medications. So you can give the same medicine to a group of patients and most will do pretty well with it. It'll be effective and they'll tolerate it well, but you'll have a subset who will have no response and another subset who may have adverse effects. And so precision medicine is, is really trying to um, target the right drugs to the right patients based on the patient's genetic information, clinical information, um, maybe different environmental effects like food intake, things like that. So um, it's really just tailoring medications to individual patients based on their characteristics. What we do here at UF, it's kind of twofold. Um, we have a large research group where we're actually looking into which factors are associated with response to medications. And we have a big group here in the College of Pharmacy who does that. We look across multiple areas, so cardiology, oncology, infectious disease, for example. And then the other thing that we do is when the data are robust enough, we translate this into clinical practice. So now here at UF Health, we have a number of examples of where we're testing patients clinically for certain genetic variants. And then we're using that information in conjunction with their clinical information, maybe what other medications they're taking, that kind of thing, to help decide what medication is, you know, may be most effective and safest for that patient. So this kind of this twofold approach there. And then we're also, you know, very interested um, in making sure what we're doing, that this intervention that we're doing is actually improving outcomes. And certainly we want to make sure it's not causing any harm. So we also are examining outcomes in patients who have had pharmacogenetic testing in many of our um, different um, areas and, and have shown for the most part improved outcomes with this approach, either that it, you know, in the case of cardiology, where we're testing some patients after they may have this procedure called an angioplasty, where they use a, you know, a a catheter with a balloon on it to open up an artery in the heart, get it off and put a stent there. We've shown that by using this approach for drug therapy after that can improve outcomes, can prevent their chance of dying, having a heart attack um, or a stroke after they had this procedure based on getting them the right medication based on their genetics. Um, we've also in the, in the pain space, so patients either with chronic pain or patients who are scheduled to undergo surgery, we genotype those patients and we use that information in conjunction with other medications they may be taking to help pick the best pain medicine for them. 
that that, that we have some pilot data that that leads to better pain control. And we're looking at that um, more so now in a, a multi-center randomized uh, controlled trial. So that's sort of a nutshell, kind of what we're doing all the way from the discovery to implementing it in practice, to looking at outcomes with those implementations. Oh, wow, I never realized how much um, the whole idea of precision many medicine consisted. Um, we definitely did some research on it to see what it was, but um, we, or at least I never realized what the work was at UF and yeah. how much there was into it. Me either. Yeah, we're probably one of the leading sites here in the precision medicine space. Oh, wow. um, we're really worldwide in what we're doing. I mean, certainly there are a number of other sites across the country and outside the U.S. that are doing precision medicine approaches, but in terms of having the whole combination of discovery, implementation, examining outcomes, and probably even our implementation efforts are in many ways more than they're doing in most other sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, along with Austria here, I really had no idea like how broad our research was here in precision medicine. I thought, you know, just doing some brief research into uh, what precision medicine was, you know, just reading about it. I just thought maybe we had some stuff and, you know, talk a lot about oncology and things like that. Uh, yeah, but especially uh, pain, I've never, or pain medication, I've never really uh, heard that much into uh, pain medication with precision medicine. And, you know, that's actually quite interesting about how it, precision medicine actually has a, has a foot in there. If you could uh, just elaborate on some stuff more on like, you know, some stuff we're doing here with, pain medication and precision medicine. Uh, you know, if you just a little more insight into that, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so some of the drugs that we take for pain, like codeine um, or tramadol, Ultram is the brand name, those drugs really aren't active very much in themselves. So the form that you take doesn't have a lot of activity at controlling your pain. But once you take those drugs, there's an enzyme in your body that converts codeine and tramadol to a more active, much more active metabolite. And it's really that metabolite that is what controls your pain. So in the case of codeine, it's metabolized or broken down to morphine. And morphine is what is pre predominantly responsible for pain control when you take a codeine-containing analgesic. So we know that there's a subset of the population. It's, it's only about, I don't know, maybe 5% who have absolutely none of that enzyme that converts codeine to morphine. And there's another 5% who have um, decreased enzyme. So they have a significant reduction in the amount of enzyme that they have. Oh, wow. And so these individuals, they can't convert codeine to morphine either at all if they have no enzyme or they convert much lower amounts if they have reduced enzyme. And so the drug may not work at all to control their pain. And the same is true for tramadol. And we think it's also true for hydrocodone, um, which is another pain medicine that's commonly prescribed, but there's still data being done there. And then sort of on the other side of the spectrum, there's a small percent of patients, maybe one or 2% who inherently have too much of the enzyme. So they very rapidly can convert codeine to morphine and they're at risk for toxicity. They could actually, if they take a normal dose of codeine, they could develop um, respiratory depression, so trouble breathing, and it could be potentially life-threatening. And there are some cases in the literature, mostly of children who have um, 
have been given normal doses of codeine and were either an ultra-rapid metabolizer. Um, one case, I think it was an infant who was being breastfed and his mother was an ultra-rapid metabolizer and receiving codeine and it was excreted through the breast milk and the child got a toxic concentration. So there's a lot, there's been a lot of focus on this. And because of that, they've actually, the FDA has contraindicated codeine and tramadol um, for children under 12. And also those under 18, I think if they're undergoing like adenotonsillectomy. Um, and it could just be if we have, you know, use this genetic test and we could determine what their genotype is, then majority of people who have a normal genotype Codeine should be a safe and effective analgesic. Um, and so what we're doing here is we have, we're testing for that enzyme that converts codeine to morphine and tramadol to its active metabolite, hydrocodone to its active metabolite. We're testing for that enzyme um, for either patients who have chronic pain that's not very well controlled to see maybe, you know, particularly if they're, if they're on codeine, tramadol, or hydrocodone, and if they're a poor, what we call a poor metabolizer, um, meaning they can't metabolize that drug, then it's not going to work. And so just switching the therapy and even using like a drug like ibuprofen over an opiate, opioid might be more effective in those patients. Um, and then also if we identify patients, of course, who have too much of the enzyme, we want to avoid the drug. Um, in our, in our surgery area, particularly for patients here at UF who are undergoing hip or knee replacement, we, once they're scheduled for their surgery, we can collect the genetic sample. And when we do the genetic sample, we mostly do a buccal swab in the clinic. So that way the patient doesn't have to go to the lab to get blood drawn, which can be a barrier. So they just in clinic there can, we just, they just swap the cheeks. Um, and that's where they get the DNA. And we test these patients prior to their surgery. And once we know what their genotype is, we can tell their surgeon. And then the surgeon can make sure they get the best medication after surgery to control their pain. Um, so that's a little bit about what we're doing. And based on our pilot data I mentioned, where we show that it does improve pain control, we now have this multi-site trial. So UF, of course, is a site. And then Indiana, Duke, um, Vanderbilt, and Mount Sinai or other sites where we're enrolling patients either with chronic pain or who are scheduled to undergo surgery and doing this genetic testing. And then given the physician's information about what the genotype is and what the most appropriate drug therapy might be based on their genotype and seeing if that does indeed help with pain control in this really large trial. And if so, it could really change practice, I think, across the, across the country. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have a question about the drug therapy. So for the drug therapy, um, when it comes to pain management, there's like a lot of studies about um, potential addiction. So how do you control that? Or is there any way to kind of avoid that when it comes to dosages? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I can answer that from the perspective of what we're doing and how it might help kind of address um, this opioid epidemic. Um, so we know that one of the main reasons patients may misuse opioids is because of ineffective pain control. Mm -hmm. So if they're taking a drug and it's just not working well to control their pain then they might seek other medication they could, you know, either from a friend who might have some or otherwise, um, 
and that can lead to this opioid persistence and contribute to the opioid epidemic. So kind of inadvertently, with this precision medicine approach, if we can help pick the best medication for that patient um, that could control their pain, then by them getting pain control, that may help to prevent them from developing opioid persistence or opioid misuse. There's also, there are data for patients who undergo a surgical procedure, and it can be an elective procedure, you know, like a procedure they chose on their own to undergo. And about 7%, 6 or 7% of those patients who are opioid naive, so they did not use any opioids before they underwent surgery, but then they had this elective surgery done and they're prescribed opioids, about 6 to 7% will still be taking opioids three to six months later, which they shouldn't be. That should have been an acute situation, controlled their pain, and that was it. And so this is really concerning because that's a major gateway to opioid um, misuse and the contributing to this opioid crisis that we're in. And so again, we're hoping that in that surgery setting, if we can make sure that, or at least help, there's no guarantee, but help make sure that the medication they get after surgery is most appropriate for that individual patient based on that patient's genotype, then that might effectively control their pain after surgery. And then they may be able to safely come off that drug and there's no persistent opioid use. So we're actually looking at both of those, you know, at persistent opioid use after surgery and op also opioid misuse in the chronic pain study as part of these multi-site trials that we're doing. So it may help in that regard. Um, the other thing, there's some data that tramadol, one of the drugs I mentioned, um, may be, uh, may be um, less potent and less addictive um, partly because it has some effects at inhibiting these hormones in your body called serotonin and norepinephrine, and that may help, or actually inhibits reuptake of those, so it leads to higher levels. But that may help to control pain. Um, and there are guidelines post-surgery that say, they're like opioid sparing guidelines that say, um, if you're going to control pain after surgery, try to use these other modalities without an opioid. But if you need an opioid, Tramadol is the preferred one because it may be less addictive. So the other thing that we can do with genetics is if we genotype someone, and most patients are going to have a normal genotype. So if you have a normal one, then we can recommend tramadol as the preferred opioid. And by getting this drug that may be less addictive, that might help with also um, avoiding persistent opioid use. So those are some potential um, benefits with precision medicine in that space. So we'll kind of see how that plays out. And of course, there's also a lot of research going on to see if there are other genes that might be associated with um, opioid misuse. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'm sure you have to look at very different aspects. So it's very cool to see how you incorporate everything into just one research. Um, so we can talk a little bit about you. So how is, um, what is your role as a director of precision medicine consist of? Sure. So we have a really large team. Um, and not, so what my sort of area is pharmacogenetics and using patient's genotype and other patient specific factors to help choose the best drug therapy. 
but we also have a number of um, clinicians and researchers who are very interested in genotyping patients to determine whether um, they may be at risk for cancer. So for example, you can test to see patients risk for breast and ovarian cancer or even pancreatic cancer. Um, so genetics goes, you know, of course, beyond pharmacogenetics, that's just my area. So I work as part of this large team where we're not only trying to advance pharmacogenetics here clinically, but also genetic testing for other diseases. Um, and in the pharmacogenetics space, we have a number of different individuals working there. I work very closely with our director of the pathology laboratory who does the genetic testing. You know, this is this requires a team approach. No one person can do it. And so we work very closely when we want to do a new start genotyping for something new. You know, what variants do we test in the gene? What is the turnaround time? How do we get that information to the physician? Um, and in terms of how to get it to the physician, we have people in health information technology. So people on our team who help us within the medical record figure out um, how to build these alerts. So the genotype gets in the medical record. But what we want is that when a patient may be prescribed a certain medication where that genotype would say, would be associated with either a decreased response or increased response, that that physician is alerted to that. So we've built these alerts. So for example, with the pain, the pain um, example that we talked about earlier, if a patient is a poor metabolizer and the physician prescribes codeine, and the, and the genotype is on file and shows that then an alert will appear and will say this patient um, has a genotype associated with, with poor response to coding. This patient may not get any pain relief from this drug um, and we would recommend this instead. So we have someone in health IT who builds those alerts. We have a huge team in education. So they help to educate the clinicians on what to do with the, these results um when to order testing that kind of thing um and then we have a number of clinical pharmacists who the physicians can call or contact if they have questions we actually have a pharmacogenetic consult clinic here so physicians if they have a patient and this is probably mostly in primary care where they may have a patient on multiple medications maybe they're being treated for depression and the drug, they just don't seem to be responding well, they've tried different therapies and it's not working, or pain, they've tried different things, it's not working. They can refer the patient to the clinic where they'll be evaluated to see if pharmacogenetic testing might help. And if so, they'll go ahead and do the testing and they'll provide the physician with a consult note on what the testing means for drug therapy for that patient. So we also have that. So. Um, so I guess on paper, I sort of direct all of those activities, but it's really a huge team approach. Um, and I would say we really have multiple directors here who make sure all of this kind of works so that our patients here can get the genetic testing that they need to help with choosing the best therapies. Well, I mean, that's just really cool to see, you know, how far and like how, how far breadth we have here at UF and, you know, what you, what you and your team, you, and how extensive the team is here. I mean, that's just really, really cool. But if you could also, I guess our next uh, question would be, you know, sort of how, how did you get here and, you know, like sort of your pathway and your process to uh, getting to pharmacogenetics? Sure. Yeah, great question. And I have a I'm old, so my story's long. Um, 
So I actually did my postdoc here um, with our Dean of the College of Pharmacy, Dr. Julie Johnson. So I did my postdoc in pharmacogenetics and learned about the discovery part, you know, how to look for variants associated with drug response. My first job was at University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, and up there, it was an inner city population. Most of our patients were either of African ancestry or Hispanic ethnicity. Um, and I was a pharmacist there in what we called an anticoagulation clinic. So patients who need a blood thinner like warfarin, I was there in the clinic with them and we helped to manage their warfarin. And there was research coming out at the time, mostly in um, white patients, showing that different genotypes affected the dose of warfarin that patients needed to kind of have this optimal anticoagulation. But there were no data coming out for our patient population. There were no data for those of African ancestry or Hispanic ethnicity. So that's how I actually initially started. I sort of identified this is a big gap in the evidence and we started getting genetic samples from our patients for research purposes. We did, of course, this all under informed consent, you know, and followed all the regulatory approaches. But we'd have patients come to clinic and we, if they were interested in participating, we had them swish with mouthwash and spit in a tube and we could get their gen genetic information from that. And so we actually led to discovering some um, important associations with genetic associations with warfarin dose, mostly in the African ancestry population. So we were, I was doing this work um, for maybe, I don't know, 10 years, and our vice president of health affairs there heard about what we were doing and asked for a meeting, and I explained what we were doing, and he said, why aren't we doing this clinically? Why are we only doing it for research? And I'm like, kind of was like, I don't know. I mean, I've never thought about doing it clinically. It's always been a research, you know, my research passion. He said, well, it seems to me that you, that as a whole, you know, collectively, the evidence is enough to support doing this in practice. Why don't you write a business plan for how this could happen? And I didn't know anything about business. I've never, I don't have a business degree, never really took any business courses. Um, but I knew someone who had started the clinic there. And so we pulled together a team and we came up with a plan for how this would work. And we worked very closely with the vice president's office and it ultimately led to a program where every patient who was hospitalized and might need this specific drug thinner, that they would get genotyped up front. And we would turn the genotype around in 24 hours and we would use that genetic information in addition to clinical factors. So it's not, genotype isn't everything, you have to consider other factors as well. And we would provide a dose recommendation for that patient, with the, which the physicians almost always accepted. Um, and so we were doing that there. It was a genotype guided warfarin dosing. Um, as the standard of care, every patient got genotype. We were the only place in the country that was doing that. And then about that time, or some, when we were doing that there, here at UF, they had started genotyping for a different drug, um, but kind of similar. It's a drug that helps prevent platelets from sticking together. And they were doing genetic testing to determine whether that drug would be effective or whether they needed something else instead. And they had started doing that clinically here. And so we were sort of doing the kind of the same things. They had a position open here and they reached out and asked if I was interested in coming. Um, and since it was sort of like coming back home, um, I was happy to do so. So I've been here since 2014 and the program had already started before me, but eventually over time I took it over 
um, and we've expanded now. So we probably offer genetic testing for, I don't know, seven, eight different drugs in different areas. Um, ones for, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease or, you know, GERD. Um, ones for pain, ones for this cardiology drug, that antiplatelet drug that keeps platelets from sticking together, um, some testing in the oncology area, um, depression, testing for helping to pick the best drug for depression. So a number of different um, therapies there. So that's sort of how I started. I started as research and never thought about it getting translated. And I was one of the very fortunate consider myself extremely lucky that I was able to translate what we were doing into clinical practice um, and then continue to do that here. So now a lot of what we're doing is recognizing that maybe it's not just the genes we're testing for now, there could be other genes that also influence drug response. And so we did still do research. Patients who may be getting tested clinically will consent them to store their extra sample so that we could look for other genes that might be associated with drug response so that we can just continue to refine our testing and what we're doing to help them you know, get better and better, I guess, more precise precision medicine. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you said this was like a few years ago. So, um, I think precision medicine is still seen as like a newer field, or at least it's not as talked about, but how new is it really? Because you said this is um, your research and clinical research has been going on for years. So what current practices are not really recognized that are currently practiced as precision medicine? Yeah, so we started our program here and the program at UIC as well around 2012. Um, and there have been other, we call ourselves early adopters, and there are a number of other examples across the country, like um, University of Pittsburgh is one, University of Maryland, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So there's a number of other examples of these early adopters. One of the reasons that it isn't more widespread is this um, desire for, the, for randomized controlled trials to show that using genotype guided therapy actually improves outcomes. Um, so we're doing these trials. I mean, I personally don't think they're needed. To me, genotype is another factor along with like maybe the way someone's kidneys work or your liver works that metabolizes drugs um, or other medications that you're taking or your age. You know, it's just another factor to consider when you're selecting drug therapy to help get the best medicine for the patient. It's also really hard to do randomized controlled trials because most patients have a normal genotype. And the drugs that are on the market are on the market because in most patients in the, you know, when they were studied, they were shown to improve outcomes. You know, there was a subset of patients who, or they were shown to be effective. There was a subset of patients who they weren't effective. There was another subset who got adverse effects, but overall the drug was shown to be safe and effective. And so pharmacogenetics is kind of a study of outliers. You're sort of picking those tail ends, you know, the people who, who have a genotype where the drug doesn't work well, the people who have a genotype where the drug causes toxicity, and those are the people you're studying, but you have to have a huge population to have enough of those outliers in there, right? 
So it's really hard to do a randomized controlled trial in this field. Um, but there's a little bit of a demand for that. Like people who say, well, I'm not going to adopt this into practice unless it's shown, you know, definitively to improve outcomes. And so we're going forward with those trials, which are very expensive because you have to enroll such huge patient populations to show a benefit in that little, the tail ends of the population. Um, the way things work um, in many disease states, I'd say particularly in cardiology, which where I am now, is that we really rely on practice guidelines to direct how therapy works. So we rely on practice guidelines, for example, for heart failure or coronary heart disease. They say, these are the medications that you should use. And the reason they're the medications you should use is because there's this randomized controlled trial evidence that these are the drugs that improve outcomes. So that's what they wanna see at pharmacogenetics before the guidelines get changed. Um, but I told you sort of how hard it is to come up with that evidence. So it's sort of like, it's sort of, you know, it rock, between a rock and a hard place, right? You need this evidence, but it's really hard to get. So we're trying to do what we can. Um, I can say in this area of cardiology and testing for this drug that helps keep platelets from clumping together, there's starting to be enough evidence um, there have been two clinical trials that have been published. There have been some meta-analyses, and we also have real-world data that this genotype-guided approach can prevent death, heart attack, stroke, patients who are undergoing this angioplasty procedure. So there's starting to be enough evidence that there's a group of, of clinicians who are appealing to the American Heart Association to revisit the guidelines on pharmacogenetic testing there. And um, so that the guidelines could potentially be revised so that genetic testing is then recommended. So that's sort of why I think there's this gap. We have these early adopter institutions that say, we believe it's another important factor that we should be considering clinical practice. Let's do it. We don't need the randomized controlled trial evidence. And then you have others that say, we want the randomized controlled trial evidence. Fortunately, I mean, the other big player here is insurance companies, because someone's got to pay for the testing, right? Um, the universities can't pay for it, the, which that, that's just not sustainable. So it has to be reimbursed, just like any other lab test, just like getting your kidney function tested. It needs to be reimbursed. So fortunately, um, many insurance companies do reimburse for pretty much all the genes that we're testing for here. I mean, we won't do anything in clinical practice unless it gets reimbursed because our path lab can't just pay for that on their own. So they do reimburse for pretty much everything that we're doing. Um, there's always gonna be exceptions. You never know until you submit that claim and whether it's gonna be paid for any individual patient, but for the most part, it is. Um, and that's why we're able to do this. It's just part of clinical care, right? I mean, you know, you get a, whatever test done, it's billed to your insurance. This would be the same way. So I think the big barrier, sort of getting back to your question is why isn't everyone using precision medicine? Um, or particularly pharmacogenetics in this instance is because one, there's this demand for this randomized controlled trial evidence showing it improves outcomes. And two, they wanna make sure it's reimbursed. Um, and um, yeah, so those are the main things. And, and just as a reminder, I mean, precision medicine is beyond just pharmacogenetics. That's what I'm talking about. But many people would say they practice precision medicine because they are considering for each individual patient, 
what their age, their kidney function, you know, all that kind of thing into what medication may be best for that patient. Pharmacogenetics is just another factor to consider. Yeah, I mean, that actually sort of just led into my, my next sort of question that was going to lead towards how insurance companies and like reimbursements and, you know, talking with payers and how that evolution has been going on. But uh, I guess just building on top of that, um, just wanted to uh, ask you a bit about how, you know, just the diagnostic industry in general can have some pretty, pretty large effects on downstream medical costs. If, you know, for example, how you were talking about earlier, um, how, you know, with screening uh, genetics or people's genetics for uh, see what drugs are effective instead of doing sort of a trial and error sort of method, especially for specialty drugs, uh, you know, how, you know how that's, you know, a developing problem. Uh, instead of having that sort of trial and error and seeing patient responds well to a drug or not, you know, instead of just having one upfront diagnostic test and then having to see, you know, this drug just specifically works, yeah, just building on top of uh, yeah, how downstream medical costs have really been improving with precision medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it right there. It's It can be very costly to do this trial and error approach. So the patient comes in, say they have high blood pressure, you try this drug for high blood pressure, it's not working, they come back in a month later, you increase the dose, still doesn't work, they come back in a month later, you either add something or you switch something. And so it's just really this, you know, going on and on trying to figure out um, what medication works best in that patient. And so by having pharmacogenetics, it might help to get that drug right the first time. And therefore you're able to control the patient's blood pressure from the start. They don't continue for months and months with high blood pressure and being at risk for adverse effects like heart attack, um, kidney failure, you know, those kind of things that can happen. Um, while I focus in pharmacogenetics, you know, the other side of this is genetic testing for disease. And I think there it can be very helpful as well because you can be on kind of this diagnostic odyssey trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong with this patient. And sometimes genetic testing can tell you what's wrong with that patient up front. It might be really expensive if you're, because in that case, you usually do sequencing where you test for multiple, multiple variants, maybe sequence part of the genome to try to figure out, you know, what could be contributing. So it can be very expensive, but on the other hand, it can be much less expensive than doing tests after tests after tests trying to figure out what's wrong with that patient and knowing up front. So that's not my area of specialty, but we also do that here, particularly like with maybe with babies who aren't doing well, then there could be, you know, they could do genetic sequencing to try to figure out if there's a genetic mutation there. Um, so, I mean, I think certainly if you, you know, kind of, kind of look at like healthcare utilization, and that's something else we're looking at in our clinical trials that we're doing now is, how often patients randomize to the genotype group versus the usual care group, how often they seek medical care. So how often they go to the emergency room, how much they're hospitalized, how many clinic visits they have. So even those kind of things, if we can show that it's cost effective to do pharmacogenic testing, because there, there are fewer emergency room visits or hospitalizations or clinic visits, then even that is a positive outcome. Um, so that's something else that we're looking at kind of as a, as a secondary outcome in the studies that we're doing currently. Um, and then I guess, you know, insurance companies, as you mentioned, they have a big interest in making sure what they're testing, you know, what they're covering 
um, would be you know effective and cost effective. And so I think this this cost effectiveness data would would also be really valuable to our third party payers if they know that by covering the cost of this pharmacogenic test and most tests, you know it's they're if the cost of most pharmacogenic tests is probably if you're going to do an individual test, like you need a patient, you're going to test them now for this one test, and you need to turn around quickly. The cost might be around $250, um, maybe a little bit more than that. You know, they build the insurance, and there's a range at which the insurance company will pay, but we're talking hundreds of dollars here, not thousands. Um, you can also test on a panel of genes, like, like we call it preemptive testing. So you may have a patient who is maybe healthy, but is getting to be at an age where they may start having a lot of comorbidities and they may need a lot of drug therapy. And so you could do a test on a panel and test a number of different genes. You have the luxury of time. You don't have to do these right away. You can hold on to them until you get a whole bunch of samples. You do them all at once, you test the patient. Um, and then that can go in the medical record and be used for the rest of the patient's life. So that can really bring the cost down so here you can get a lot more genes, but because you're able to run all these tests at once, it could cost you know, $100 or something. Um, but insurance companies won't pay for that, even though it makes a lot of sense to do that and to have those data, but because they aren't sure that it is cost effective. So I think we're also looking to try to get data that even like panel-based testing, we're not doing this personally, but there are groups doing it, particularly in Europe, but this panel-based testing approach um, can improve outcomes and can ultimately be cost effective because then you have all this data in the patient's medical record that can be used throughout that patient's lifetime with drug therapy. So I think I kind of went around <laughs> on that answer, um, but hopefully I sort of addressed your question. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, that's a, we kind of have to dance around. It's a pretty broad question right there. So, I mean, you kind of hit all the nails on the head. <laughs> Um, so we know that you mainly focus on pharmacogenetics, but um, are there other parts of the precision medicine department and or at UF that focus on like other treatments, other illnesses like cancer or um, anything else? Um, yeah, so mostly what we're doing here is we're talking about testing for variants in the germline. So, you know, what the, the genes that you're born with. The other testing that's done is, is somatic testing. So testing tumor tissue, as you're alluding to in cancer. We do that clinically here. So, for example, patients with colorectal cancer they'll biopsy the tumor and they can send it to the lab here and they, they'll sequence the tumors, mostly looking for variants that would help direct therapy. So variants that specifically address genetic mutations and, the, and the, this therapy is not gonna work in a person unless they have this genetic mutation. So they're doing a lot of that in cancer. We do have uh, one, re one researcher here in particular who's on the discovery end, looking at variants that can influence response to cancer therapy. She might identify novel targets for cancer therapy. She's really focused in AML or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, mostly in children, um, but has her research has led to discovery of these new variants um, that could help with new therapies or with existing therapies. There was one therapy that 
was essentially withdrawn from the market um, because of not being effective. And she did some research to show that in patients with a certain genetic mutation, it is effective. And it's brought the drug back for those patients with the mutation. So that's kind of another area that of focus for, for research is in the somatic tissue. Um, and again, it's not something I'm expert on, but perhaps this person, Dr. Lamba, could be a, a guest in the future on your on your program. Yeah, I guess we'll have to shoot him an email and see if we can get him on here. <laughs> Maybe episode two right there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I guess another question we have for you here would be, you know, you, uh, I remember you mentioned having to swab people in clinic instead of, you know, having them sent for a blood work order to be done for testing. Um, and you talked about also how you have a team here working on like the healthcare administrative side, sorry, <laughs> administrative side, just getting that. Uh, yeah, you know, as also an important part of like precision medicine. So I guess maybe you could talk about um, how, you know, there's uh, like other barriers to having this, you know, having some testing being done. Uh, I know, for example, I guess one sort of trying to allude to here is, uh, you know, there was a uh, law passed in California, or sorry, an amendment passed in California. I believe it was for removing the prior authorization uh, for biomarker testing. Uh, and this was for tumor testing stage three and four. And I know people were talking about how, you know, it's a pretty big step because prior authorization being, uh, you know, some sort of barrier because there's that administrative hurdle for physicians to do, uh, you know, with physicians having to spend like 16 hours maybe, you know, per week having to get that done. So maybe talk maybe about, you know, some type of these uh, administrative hurdles being uh, a barrier, you know, for diagnostic imaging. Yeah, there was actually some talk in Florida as well. I think there's a law about maybe having to get extra consent from the patient before doing genetic testing. But there were, I think, people from the legal department, and, I, and I'm not an expert here, but people from the legal department here who looked into that and figured out it will not affect what we are doing, that these patients, you know, when you go to the hospital or go to a clinic visit or having a procedure, you have to consent to your, you know, for them, you have to sign a consent form, right, authorizing mm -hmm. them to do medical therapy. Um, or treatment or whatever kind of diagnostic test need to be done. And so the pharmacogenetic testing falls under that. So we're protected from that with that here. So patients don't have to sign any kind of extra consent form for the pharmacogenetic testing unless they're in a research study. And then of course we would do the research consent. But for clinical care, for our patients getting tested, there is no um, um, consent required. In terms of barriers, I mean, I think there's a number of different barriers. One is the reimbursements. We want to make sure the testing's reimbursed. Another is the turnaround time because, so say the physician wants to prescribe, patient comes in with pain and they want to prescribe codeine. Well, the patient's in pain. They're not going to say, let me get a genetic sample and let me wait till it gets back, which might be three, five days, whatever, and then we'll give you something. So how do you handle that situation? Do you just prescribe them whatever? And then you do, you know, if they don't respond, then you consider doing a genetic test. So that's a barrier that you don't have the results right there when you need them at the point of prescribing, which is why we think this preemptive testing, you know, testing a whole bunch of genes up front, putting that in the medical record, and then it's there so that the patient comes in with pain, the physician wants to prescribe codeine, they get an alert, boom, 
this patient probably won't respond to coding the rapport metabolizer. So I think that's a barrier, this whole turnaround time and being able to do panel-based testing if it was reimbursed preemptively would be very helpful in that regard. Um, other barriers. So another barrier is we have a very fragmented health system, right? So you might, like your student here at UF, you get your health care here, but then you may get a job at in Virginia. And so then you're a whole different health care there. Well, if you got pharmacogenetic testing here, would those results go with you? So there's, you know, we need to make sure there's a way that if people do get tested, because it's a lifetime result, your pharmacogenetics for germline tissue should not change. So once you get tested, you never need to be tested again, unless new variants are discovered that you need to be tested for, that kind of thing. So we need a way that these results are portable and they follow patients from institution to institution. And there have been different people trying to figure out ways to make that happen. You know, do we give patients a card and the card has a QR code on it and this is your genetic results and you can just give it to whoever and it can pull right up. Um, so, you know, working on ways to figure that out. Um, education, I think is a big barrier. You know, we're doing all this testing, but it's not gonna matter if the physician doesn't know what to do with it. So the patient's been tested there. And I think there are actually examples where patients have been tested and they come in maybe with a printout of their results and give them to the physician. And they're like, you know, I don't know what to do with that. And so we need to make sure that our clinicians are educated on what to do with those results. Um, know when they need to retest the patient. The patient comes in with a piece of paper and it's not from like a lab that's certified to do pharmacogenetic testing, then they need to repeat it there. Um, so knowing when to do that. So I think that's another big barrier. We're trying to address a lot of that education barriers with our kind of alerts in the medical record. So maybe a clinician doesn't know anything about coding and genetics, but if they get an alert when they prescribe coding that says based on this patient genotype, this drug will not work well, it's not expected to work, choose something else, then that's helpful, right? Then that's point of care, it can tell them what to do, even if they don't know a lot of the background about it. So I think those are some of the big barriers that we're seeing to moving the field forward, in addition to this demand for evidence, mm -hmm. which I talked about, and we're working the best that we can um, with that. So, I mean, I think ultimately, if insurance companies found it useful to do this preemptive panel-based testing of their, of their um, insured patients. So patients could get genotyped, it could get in the medical record, it could be there for the patient's lifetime. There was a method of it going with the patient if they moved to a different institution. Then that would seem to really be ideal. Um, what's it gonna take to get there? I don't know, but hopefully eventually that's what we'll will move to. And, and I think eventually it won't just be testing for a panel of variants, it'll be sequencing. You know, there may be at some point where we all get sequenced at some point in our lifetime and then we know all of our genes, all of our variants, so there's no need to redo that testing and then that can be used to help with therapy and disease diagnosis too. So to go off of that, um, just to understand more, is panel testing like similar to genetic mapping or is it just a smaller part of it? And I didn't really define that very well. Um, so what we would call panel testing here would be testing for variants and say 10 different genes. So you might be testing for 30, 40, 50, whatever variants, but in 10 different genes, 
that are the main ones that influence drug response. So most of the data are with drug metabolizing genes. So like the enzyme that converts codeine to its active form, those kind of genes. So if we test for all the variants we know to be functional and influence drug response across multiple genes, then that's going to be a lot of it. The disadvantage is that new variants are discovered all the time. And so that panel might change. New genes might, there might be new evidence with a new gene that influences drug response. So we have to add that gene to the panel and patients who have had the panel before won't have that gene on there. So they may need to be retested. So I think that's sort of where the beauty of sequencing comes in because then you could just sequence the patient and then you have all of their genetic information and it wouldn't matter if any things are discovered, they would be on that sequencing panel. But I'm mostly talking about just sequencing specific variants. There is a, um, you know, so which variants do we test? There is a group called, um, well, it's the Association of Molecular Pathology. And it's an international group. And they'll review the evidence with different genes. So this gene, for example, that metabolizes codeine, they'll review all the different variants and they come up with a list of must test variants. So if you're gonna do this test in your laboratory for patients at your health center, these are the variants that you should definitely include on that test. Um, and they've done this now, I think there are four or five or so guidelines that have already been done and they're continuing to do those. So, so that will help labs know which variants to test for. Um, the other big group we have to help us with pharmacogenetics is called CPIC, which is Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. Um, CPIC is also an international group, and there's a lot of overlap. A lot of people with AMP are also with the Association of Molecular Pathology Guidelines are also part of CPIC because we want everything to, to be, you know, to streamline and to be sort of the same across. What CPIC does is reviews the evidence on genetic associations with drug response and provide guidelines for clinicians on how to use genetic information. So they don't say like when to test someone or not. They leave that to like clinical practice guidelines, but their guidelines will say like, if you tested this person for this gene that metabolizes codeine, then if they had this genotype or versus this genotype, this is what you should do. And so it would say, if you know, if they were poor metabolizer, you should avoid codeine, tramadol, blah, blah, blah. So we have guidelines now that say what to test for and then what to do with the test results. What we don't have in many cases is when to test. Um, that's sort of up to the individual clinician. And there, there, I mean, it's, it's not, there are some guidance. So for example, there's this one gene that um, there's a variant that's more common in those of Asian ancestry. And if you have this variant and you're prescribed a drug, an anti-epileptic drug called Tegretol or Phenytoin, Dilantin, and you have this variant, then you're at risk for severe skin reactions, severe cutaneous reactions. And the most severe is your skin can actually kind of slough off. Um, so life-threatening, um, very serious adverse effect. The variant's rare but it's mostly in Asian populations. So actually the guidance says, before you use these anti-epileptic drugs in persons of, um, and it may be East Asian ancestry, I can't remember specifically, you should test for this variant 
And if the person has it, do not use this drug. Um, the variant again is rare, but if a person has it and is exposed, it could be life-threatening. So there are some examples where it says you should test, but in most cases there are not. It's up to the clinician. Um, so you said that the like genes keep getting introduced, which I understand. Would it be too early um, to propose the idea to do like the panel testing? almost at birth or like a very young age? That's a great question. And it's something that's being debated, like, and it's probably even more sequencing. If we're gonna sequence individuals, when do we do that? Do we do that when they're born? I mean, there's already some genetic testing going on then um, to, for metabolic disorders. So do you do that when they're born? And then that, that, that information is then there, or do you do it when patients reach a certain age and they start having, you know, more diseases or high risk for disease and might need drug therapy. But then there's so many other drugs that like pain medications, you could be need a pain medication at what at any age, right? Um, so there's a lot of debate on when is it most appropriate to do this? They're not going to at some point just turn the switch and say sequence everybody. So the other question is, if we were going to do this kind of testing, who do we start with? You know, is it people who are really high risk for needing these medications on, you know, that would be informed and who are those people? How do we identify them? So hopefully eventually we'll get where everybody is sequenced at birth or whatever would be ideal, but it's going to sort of happen, I think, in baby steps. And I don't know where that's going to start. I think if, you know, 10, 20 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and they're looking to the future, I think people would have predicted that we'd already be there right now and we're not. But I think we've also made huge strides in the last decade or so to actually doing testing in practice. And I think it's only gonna grow from here. Yeah, I mean, looking forward to see, you know, how it progresses. I, to be honest, you know, now thinking about it, I am, you know, kind of along those lines, like, <laughs> I would sort of expect, you know, a lot of genetic sequencing actually to be in play now, uh, you know, considering all these benefits to it and what we've discussed today. Um, but yeah, you know, reaching about the one hour mark here, I think it's a good time to start wrapping up. Uh, you know, thank you so much for being here and uh, for telling us about everything you're discussing with us about uh, everything that's going on, you know, in the field in general and also here specifically at UF. It's really insightful, especially for a lot of our audience will, you know, be undergraduates here who may or may not be aware of precision medicine and everything we're doing here as a whole. Uh, you know, very insightful. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. And my pleasure. Thank you for having me.